Hello, and welcome to the AAMFT podcast. Your all-access pass to the latest news developments and thought leaders in the world of systemic therapy. We strive to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. I'm your host, Dr. Eli Karam, and we're brought to you by the American Association for Marriage and Family Therapy. Our podcast explores topics that relationship-based therapists care about. In addition to featuring unique conversations and interviews with established experts, our show provides information and education on direct practice and emerging trends in the MFT profession. For more information, please visit us at aamft.org. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. The family develops a kind of homeostasis, their normal routine and dynamic that's dramatically disrupted when a member of that family system develops a chronic illness. Indeed, chronic illness changes family members' roles, responsibilities, and boundaries. It disrupts self-esteem, self-image, and it triggers distressing emotions, anxiety, depression, resentment, feelings of helplessness, as well as illness-related factors such as permanent changes in physical appearance or bodily functioning. Now, how family responds to chronic illness varies based on the age and developmental stage of the afflicted individual, the strength and coping mechanisms of the family, and the life cycle stage that they're in. There's many different ways that chronic illness can affect a family system. The person who is chronically ill may feel guilty about the demands his or her illness has on the family. He or she may even resent the change in roles and responsibilities caused by the limitations imposed by the illness. And you have to deal with the threat to autonomy and the need to depend on other family members. Here's where we come in as systemic couple and family therapists. Today on the AAMFT podcast, we're talking to an expert in working with family systems and chronic illness, Dr. John Rolland. John Rolland is the executive co-director and co-founder of the Chicago Center for Family Health. He is an adjunct professor of psychiatry and behavioral sciences at the Northwestern's Feinberg School of Medicine. At the Chicago Center for Family Health, he directs its internationally distinguished families, illness, and collaborative healthcare program. John received his training in medicine and psychiatry at the University of Michigan and Yale. He earned his master's degree from Harvard, the School of Public Health, who is the founding director of the Center for Illness and Families that was affiliated with Yale. He's widely recognized for his conceptual model, clinical work, and research with families facing serious physical disorders. His latest book, which we'll talk about today, Helping Couples and Families Navigate Illness and Disability, an Integrated Approach. He is a distinguished life fellow of the American Psychiatric Association, a former fellow of the Institute for Social and Policy Studies at Yale. He's the past president of AFTA, the American Family Therapy Academy. His professional honors include AFTA's Innovative Contributions to Family Therapy Award and the Blanche Idelson Award for Distinguished Contribution to the Field of Mental Health from the American Orthopsychiatric Association. He's also an AMFT-approved clinical supervisor and serves on the editorial boards of several journals, including Family Process and JMFT, the Journal of Marital and Family Therapy. 
Eli, back with you on the AAMFT podcast. I am so happy to be joined by John Rowland, and we are talking all about the integration of systemic therapy, MFT, with the medical system, specifically John's long and illustrious career working with chronically ill families. So many of you have heard of John, but if you haven't, we like to always start, John, with talking about how the passion was really ignited by the model developer. You're an MD, of course. What initially got you interested in family systems? That's an interesting question. I have background and training as a community psychiatrist, and I also have a public health degree. So I learned about systems before I came to family systems. I didn't work my way so much out of an individual model. I was interested in larger systems, and then I got exposed to more of a family perspective. So it was familiar to me. And actually, when I came into the family field, I was wondering why they stopped at the end of the family system. It wasn't into larger systems at that point. I would say the other main thing was that I had some personal experiences that really sensitized me. Within a year, my mother had a stroke. This was at the beginning of my psychiatry residency. And then my first wife developed cancer. So I was both in the position of an adult son. I have a brother and then I was a spouse. And there was a basically this strategy was how do you get day to day? There was no information really given. We did not ask for consultation. I don't even know if we could have found it. So it was a real struggle. It was obviously an extremely humbling experience. And as that wore on, I started to think more about you know, what would have been useful to us. It was more afterwards. My first wife passed away after four years. So I was 31 years old. So I'd had a lot of experiences with chronic illness in my family between 27 and 31. I would often wonder what would have been helpful. What could have, what kinds of questions could we have been asked? What would have helped a young couple? I was in my training at that time and my uh, first wife was in graduate school. So I think that was part of it. The other thing is I started to do some reading and there was hardly any literature, but what was there was very much a focus on psychosomatics, kind of a pathology focus, psychopathology sort of focus and an individual model. So there was really nothing that spoke to family, couples, what's a normative framework, how do you possibly grow in this situation rather than damage control. So all those things influenced me. Just as further background, I had considered family medicine as an alternative to what I ended up going into in psychiatry. So I was always interested in, I missed some of the medical side of things as well. And also family medicine was very much to me focused on the level of family. A lot of family practitioners see a number, if not all, family members across the lifespan. So I think that was, all of that was appealing to me. So those were things that sort of all I thought about. I was always interested as well in the time dimension, so how things evolve. I had started as a molecular geneticist, actually. I went from molecular genetics to larger systems. But there was a lot of how systems evolve, how things change over time. So that was another lens. I also was fortunate to have worked with a guy at Yale, Dan Levinson, who was one of the people who did the work on adult development. So the whole concept that people continue to change and grow over the lifespan. And then when I got into family training, I trained with Betty Carter and family life cycle. So my mentors were 
particularly interested in development per se. The other thing that was happening is when I started in community psychiatry, I was directing a mental health center north of New Haven, and we were responsible for the consults in the hospital. I would go over to the hospital and I would do a consultation and families were often there and really one foot in front of the other, I would talk to family members, particularly where the patient would have dementia or somehow was cognitively impaired. I would have to get a lot of information from families. And so that was another piece of the beginning. I think the deepest part was that I really felt something should be offered to people from my personal experience that there should be something available at a family level. So I didn't understand all the intricacies of family therapy, family models. That was really not part of that. With this public health background, John, you were always interested in more macro systems and this very personal experience, which I thank you for sharing with our listeners that kind of brought you into this. Now, many of our listeners, 99% of them are practicing clinicians and they think the medical model is very different from the context, contextual systemic world that they live and practice in. How do you personally, given that background, integrate two different worlds of family-oriented behavioral health care? How do you integrate the very pathology-driven medical model with the strength and health focus that all family therapists inherently possess? When I came into the family field, I didn't think that it was all strength-based or resilience-oriented. There was a fair amount of a psychopathology orientation that was brought into the field from the beginning. I would say there's some similarities, though, so that in understanding the body, you have to understand systems. It's not like when you learn to become a physician, you don't learn about systems. And to become a good physician, you have to understand how different body systems work within one another. So there is a systemic lens. It's not the kind that is used in a sense in the family systems field. But when I've trained residents and medical students, I appeal to that side because they obviously have an interest in how a body system works together. So that's different than the level of the physician is has a biomedical orientation and then there's mental health professionals who have more of a psychosocial orientation. I wanted to bring those together, but there's more overlaps than one would imagine at some deep level about paradigms that people use. You are known, John, for your family systems illness model, which is a very sophisticated framework for evaluation, formulation, and intervention with families dealing with chronic illness and disability. For those not familiar with your framework, can you give us a brief overview and really is your life's work and a beautiful marriage of what we've been talking about here, a great integration? One of the things that interested me was that how could you bring the biomedical world you were talking about and the psychosocial world together? So when a person's diagnosed with chronic illness or serious illness, Basically, the other members of the family are put on the margins. There's a workup, there's diagnoses, there's a treatment plan. Generally, that's very individually oriented. So I felt, and it's very biomedical at the onset. And so one of the strongest interests I had was how do you bring the biomedical and psychosocial worlds together, which was in your previous question. And I thought at some point you have to have a bridge between the biomedical and psychosocial worlds, both for the physician I'm using healthcare professional physician more generically here because they have to make a transit. Can they get out of that biomedical world and think psychosocially? And then how do you help mental health practitioners who are not trained biomedically by and large? How do you get them to think psychosocially? So I wanted to bring those together. And was there a way I could think about 
starting out, could I think about illnesses in a psychosocial sense? So my first piece of the model was how do you think psychosocially about illnesses? And the way I go about that is I think about what is the pattern of the illness? So in that sense, that's a systemic way of thinking. What's the pattern of how it started? Was it more acute, more gradual? What's the prognosis? Is it going to be progressive? Is it a disability that's not going to change? Is it relapsing? What is the expected outcome? Is it life-threatening? How much uncertainty and what kind of disability? So I take illnesses, and I take some characteristics of illnesses, and I put them together into a way of thinking to help both the biomedical provider and the psychosocial provider and family members find a way to join, to find a place to meet. And I also think about phases of illness. So the way I took an illness is, can you give it a personality, so to speak? And then a time course, what's the expected course of an illness? And if you put those together, what I created was a psychosocial typology and time phases of illness. My goal was that not all Ill chronic illnesses are different and they're not all the same. I was trying to thread the needle between what some way for us as practitioners to think about illnesses is not too generic, but not so specific that ever you work with one disease and then you don't know anything about working with another disease. And the other parts of the model I'll get to in a second, but I very much believed in if there was a way to get families involved move it from an individual level more to a family level in that early phase so that the family unit and the support of the family unit is more the unit of care in terms of psychosocially. It was very important to think about prevention, what kinds of questions are useful, what kinds of things are useful for family members to talk about at different phases to help them get through the experience. Much more of a consultative model in the sense that you didn't have to show up for family therapy because most people in these situations have not had any kind of therapy, nor have they had family therapy. So it had to be a user-friendly model. So I think much more about periodic consultations, things like that. The other part of the model is more on the family side. So that is thinking about development. How do you think over time? And regardless of what model you use for family therapy, with chronic illness, you can't have just a cross-sectional model. You can't have a purely structural, purely solution-focused because you've got a condition that's going to keep unfolding. And it's unfolding in relation to how the family develops and how does each individual members develop. For physicians or for the healthcare team, they're thinking about if the disease relapses, dad has a recurrence of cancer, if somebody has another heart attack, then they can think, okay, this will affect the family. The thing is that even if a disease stays stable, the development of the family or the development of each individual member changes the relationship to whatever the illness is. So I think about three lines of development. How's the illness going to develop or what's its expected course? What's the family life cycle sorts of phases? Then there could be multiple family life cycles going on simultaneously. And how do you think about each individual family member's development? So when I meet people, I think about where is this landing in their lives? How is this disease going to unfold? How can it unfold in relation to different developments going on in the family system? The third level model is belief systems and thinking about how families make meaning, 
What kinds of attributions do they make about an illness? One of the ones I always ask is, do you have any explanation or any theory about why this happened to you or happened to your family member? Because if there's attributions of blame or self-blame, those are usually, to me, very serious. And it's very hard for people to adapt if they blame themselves or blame another family member. And I don't mean that there's never accountability if you smoke. You did, there's a way you brought it on yourself, in my opinion, if you get lung cancer. On the other hand, if a person says, his nagging gave me my heart attack, you're implying that your heart attack has been caused by the processes between you and your spouse. And since it's life-threatening, and if I die from this or it gets more disabling, it's your fault. So I'm interested in those kinds of things. I'm interested in certainly spiritual domain, cultural, racial variables that can also affect the meaning systems. So those are three levels that I try to take a look at in a family. And I'm interested in that. How does that then affect family organization? How does, what kind of communication does a family have? What kinds of belief systems? But I'm using these other variables as a way of asking questions about communication, asking questions about problem solving, asking questions about how do families organize themselves? How flexible are they? Again, most families don't have a psychosocial map for the experience of illness. They need psychoeducation. And part of what I just said is really in the form of translating that into psychoeducation to give families the beginnings of a map that they can use to get through the experience of illness. It also helps practitioners. I have a lot of doctoral students who come train at our center, train with, do a fellowship in families, illness, and collaborative healthcare. Many of them had, have had 13 courses in family therapy, but they have not had a course that talks about how do you work when you're working in a situation of serious illness leaving out the medical system, which is a whole nother, how do you work within a healthcare system? So those are some elements of the model. In my book, my last book, I flesh all that out into what kinds of questions does one ask or can one ask to get more information. On the time dimension, I'm interested also in what people bring from their past. So I usually do, not because I'm going to do Bowenian therapy, but I think it's really important to know what experiences family members have had, not just the person who's got the illness, what kinds of illness experiences have you had? What did you learn from those experiences and how can they be used now? So it's not just damage control, but what did you learn that can also be a source of strength? So for instance, growing up in a family where there's been divorce, where there's been poverty, there are skills of adaptation that people learn that they can then apply to a situation of illness. So it's not just illnesses, but other forms of adversity that I'm curious about. But I always think it's important to know what were the experiences, what role did you play, what did you learn from that experience? Because I think that helps. Also, I learn a lot about cultural values, traditions in the family, about caregiving, all kinds of things when I ask those kinds of questions. Very different than coaching. I'm going to coach them in their family of origin, which I do on some occasions, but this is more to inform what do people bring from their past and where does this land in their life now? And then how do I help them think into the future? I think a lot of clients come in to see family therapists where they have been disheartened by the medical system. Their doctor has no bedside manner here. They've <laughs> just diagnosed this chronic illness and they've just put it out there. And 
while medically they have given a good rationale, all of these psychosocial factors, the relational factors that the family feels left out in the cold. So let's say I'm not in Chicago. I can't go to the Chicago Center for Family Health that you and Froma started. How to do MFTs, first of all, educate physicians? And how did you even get out of the gate? Were you aiming at clinicians first or were you aiming at physicians first? Because it would seem like you would have to train the physician to think in this integrative way and then hook them up with a good family therapist? Well, I think it's both. It's a great question. It's interesting. When I was still in New Haven, Yale, the best physician I met was a plastic surgeon who did the reconstructive breast surgeries on women who had mastectomies. And he once asked me to do a consult. I didn't know this guy. He called me up, asked me to do a consult. And I said something like, would you mind if I meet with her and her husband? He says, no, that's a good idea. And so I met, and then he said, I want to do this with all my, but he got it in one round. I don't know. I don't know what all went into it. He just got it. There's people I've trained for, they don't, they, they just have trouble getting it. So sometimes I don't underestimate the possibility of healthcare professionals being able to get on board with these kinds of ideas. I have experienced that nursing is the best layer. Nurses get, I think, more psychosocial training on average. I can't say that for sure, but they often come out of a world where they're already more open, I think, or there's, they've had more experiences sitting with patients on a unit or in a clinic or whatever. So I think you can't generalize. Each discipline has its own constraints and maybe it's also positive. I think that for MFTs, in most healthcare settings until the last 20, 25 years, mental health professionals did not include MFTs. And that's a much longer conversation. So I think right now, integrated care and the use of MFTs is a growing field. It's very vital. It has much stronger roots at present in family medicine. That's where the entree was because family medicine had more openness. There were also family doctors where they found their way to this kind of way of thinking, not family therapy, but just the importance of family. And I think that's where these different things converge, but it's a hard question because I want families to advocate for themselves. So many times here in Chicago, where I meet with a family and they come in with their tail between their legs, the physician or somebody has made a referral after things headed south. And they're already in a lot of trouble. And I always feel badly when I start with that because, number one, the family has a sense of blame. They're much further down the road. So I really look for if I can coach families or when I'm working with different services is really to engage the family early on in a much more this is just part of the care when you have chronic illness rather than it's, it's a punishment at some point later down the road. I try to help families advocate for themselves. So people who've had negative experiences or have hesitancy for myriad reasons is to be able to voice those. And here's what I need so that it's not, they're not at the mercy of, of the healthcare team, but that they actually see some agency for themselves. And that's not always an easy step. A lot of families feel misunderstood and disrespected, but they don't speak up. So the kind of example you started with, and I try to elicit that. Have you had experiences? Have you, have you been in this situation before? Have you had good experiences? Have you had particularly disturbing experiences? In my own 
experience, which I call framing events, is often a lot happens in those first communications that a healthcare team makes with a family that can have either a, a good joining effect, just like in therapy, or it can have a disconnecting effect. So very briefly in my situation, my, my first wife was admitted for a five-day workup. The physician never asked, how do you two take information? Never really asked any of those questions, even though he was a highly skilled technician. At the end of five days, he comes in the room and takes everybody out in the hall, leaving the patient, my, my first wife, in the room and tells us the prognosis, tells us the diagnosis, prognosis, and treatment plan. That's a framing event. Everything has just happened in the space of five seconds. You don't come in the room if there's good news and say, and take people out in the hall. You would just say, tests are normal, have a good life. So we know it's bad news. Separates spouse, a couple, separates the rest of the family from the patient. So you're modeling communication. A lot of things are happening really quickly, which I'm sure that physician had no idea at that point. But that person no longer was a healer to us. He became just a technician, which is a sad commentary. I had no ability to speak up. You're terrified. Lots going on. So I do ask people about that. And if you met me and were doing a consult on me, it would be good for you to know some version of that story just because you know what sensitizes. Have those if they've had particularly negative or affirming experiences. If you've had a bad experience with a physician where you feel stigmatized or not listened to and you talk about helping our patients be self-advocates, would you tell them to go back to that doctor or give them feedback? Because you felt burned and there was no going back in your situation with your late wife. If you're coaching a patient or a family, how do you tell them to deal with a very technically skilled but interpersonally inept physician? It's a little bit like a relationship that had no closure. Nobody spoke about it. So in some ways, it's a little bit like coaching at that point. Depends on what kind of community they live in, if they're in a small community versus they're in a big city where they're with different doctors. First, eliciting those stories. But I'm also interested in affirming stories. Sometimes you might suggest contacting or writing to a prior healthcare professional just for closure. Here's what happened. I wanted you to know. Here's what happened. Not to start a lawsuit, just to express it because sometimes you have to bring some closure to a prior relationship before you can engage in a new one. That's no different than general family systems thinking or a couple. So some of those same skills can be used. And you have to know where you are. You have to know what the consequences of doing certain things are. In certain situations, I could be creating a problem for myself. Certainly earlier in my career, I had more of a sense of vulnerability that if I urge people to complain or do things than my department chair, whatever, there would be consequences. That's just part of the thinking. But I think sometimes just writing a letter that you're not going to send can be therapeutic. So whatever, that's an exploration with the patient or the, in this case, the family, because sometimes it doesn't have to be the patient who felt disrespected. It can be easily be another family member that was marginalized, etc. I will use those skills. Sometimes that's just not feasible. And the best you can do is empathize with the situation and say, I'm really sorry that happened to you. How does that affect your willingness or your ability to work with your healthcare team now? I would explore that. I think family therapists have very good skills in that area. They do, because if you've been burned by the medical system, you certainly don't want to be burned by your mental health system. So to make sure creating that culture of feedback and modeling that you are receptive and you may not be able to change what has happened to them and in their interface, but you don't want to certainly replicate that. And 
I think you're right. Many of these patients, and not just the patient, your story is powerful because you felt marginalized as the caregiver. So I think to ask the whole family their experience of that is important. So that's clearly a challenge. What do you think the other major challenges associated with working with these type of chronically ill family systems? I think there's, I think there's a, there's many. Number one, you're working with a healthcare system. So the, the idea of the practitioner, you, somebody comes to your office and there's this cocoon you create, you do therapy. I think when you're working with people who are dealing with a major illness, there's specialists, there's primary care doctors, there's all kinds of people. There may be movement between inpatient unit, an intensive care unit, a rehabilitation, outpatient. I will tell families you're going to visit many different planets. That's the way I put that together. The journey, part of it is for the family, they're going to be in lots of different contexts potentially, unless it's just a chronic illness where they take their medicine and they have a once a year appointment with their doctor. But a lot of chronic illnesses, particularly serious ones, there's often multiple specialists. There may be different interventions. There may be times you need to be in different settings. Intensive care units and hospice and palliative care systems are extremely different. They can be housed all at the same in Northwestern Feinberg School of Medicine, but they're really different cultures. What is the meaning of including family? When you're in an intensive care unit, it's 10 minutes, one visitor. It's very structured and limited. If you were in palliative care hospice it's a family member wants to stay overnight though you can stay overnight we'll pull in another bed or a cot or something there's a very different level so i think that's one of the challenges but for clinicians you have to be able to ride that wave i think the perception of healthcare professionals of many mental health professionals is that they do create a cocoon and there's no way to get any information so integrated care where mental health professionals are working on site like in a family practice center, which is where are the fellows I've got currently, this is where they are. They've got to learn about boundaries, but you've got to learn how to work together with everybody. You're, you want to be part of the healthcare team. You can't create a kind of a cocoon. So some of working out privacy versus how do you collaborate? Where do you give information? All of those kinds of things I think are particular skill you have to learn. And for some people, it's harder than others. And some people prefer a private practice. But if you have people with chronic illness in your private practice and you choose not to communicate or have any connection with the rest of the healthcare team, I'm not sure that's the best for the family. I, in fact, I'm, my personal feeling is that's not ideal because then you're recreating this kind of boundary between mental health and psychosocial care. The other thing that can happen, sometimes when families come to me late, nearly everybody in the family, kids included, are on psychotropic medications, have their own therapists. So sometimes you have this congregation of mental health professionals, but nobody has ever sat with the family. So for me, with chronic illness, the family is the hub of the wheel. Once you engage the family, you could have individual therapists if that's what's called for. But I think what's challenging is sometimes when you get really complex cases where people have got numbers of therapists have already been engaged, school systems, on and on. And it's very challenging for me then to try to pull that together. Getting cohesion out of the mental health professionals is as big a challenge as anything else. I would say that I think also just diseases. Sometimes I feel like I'm working on something 
that's at a deeper level with a family. And then somebody has an illness crisis and we got to revert to just like the family. You have to drop whatever you were. You have to focus on what are the supportive needs now for this family while their family member is now back in the hospital. And I think that that's challenging. My background as a physician helps me in that regard because that's just the way things were when I was in my medical training. But I think that's some of the, one of the things that's also difficult for, pe for people who are trying to learn to do this work. I think it's also comfort with any triggers in oneself. When, I, when we do training very early in the year with the fellows, they present their genograms. And a lot of them have done their genograms in their graduate programs, but they have not necessarily done their genograms through it through an illness lens. What is the cultural background? What kinds of illnesses? And those things can be triggers. Certainly when I had my experience with my first wife, I didn't start working with this right away. I was, it was way too immediate. And even, I would say even to this day, I have to watch because I'm, I have a, a greater sensitivity to a certain degree with the position of the wet, what I would call the weller spouse. So I don't want to get triangled into that. I have to be mindful. And I think we all have that. When I was a psychiatry resident, when I was working with schizophrenia, I didn't push any buttons because I don't have any of that in my family. Thank God. But with illness, everybody's got experiences. We all have experiences. And so knowing not just for your vulnerabilities, but also the strengths, I mean, one could argue, I shouldn't Roland, you shouldn't have done, do any of this kind of work, given what you went through. It's all counter-transference. I don't believe that. I believe there's strengths and resilience and things I learned that can make me a better clinician working with this. At the same time, there's, there's vulnerabilities. And I think sometimes triggers come up at a particular point in one's life. If somebody's starting a family and they're working with who's dealing with fertility issues or ovarian cancer, breast cancer, any of those. Sometimes people can get triggered by something because they're entering their, a clinician is entering their own life transition themselves and something that they hadn't been thinking of now gets more triggered. I think that's true for all of us through the lifespan. We, I want to make that part of the training. I want people to be aware. How is this affecting you personally? Is there anything coming up for you? Those are things that I'm interested in and eliciting and making that part of the conversation. Let me give you another scenario. You have a patient where obviously they're chronically ill, but they say, I don't want to burden my family anymore. My kids don't need to know about this. I will just handle it. So clearly family therapy needs to be done. They are either hiding the severity of their diagnosis or they are minimizing the family level care it will take to deal with this chronic health issue. How do you get a reluctant patient to be open to including their family members? Sometimes, I know it sounds simplistic, but sometimes people haven't considered the downside of what, what does it mean to not include them? What will their feelings be when they find out later? Are there things that maybe they would have wanted to do or do with you. It comes up, you know, to me, is as much the other way, where in a lot of cultures, you don't tell the patient anything. <laughs> you tell the family members, and the family members don't tell the patient. And then at the end, you have this terminally ill person, and they're furious. If I'd known I had a life-threatening or terminal illness, I would have wanted to do some things differently. 
So there's always the, what are the possible ramifications? Can you see anything positive that would come out of bringing in your family? What are, you, what are your concerns? They're already burdened enough. I think that's what you said. Well, one of the things, if you start getting more, have more disability, they're going to have more caregiving demands. Wouldn't you want to be part of the discussion and negotiation of how you could divvy that up differently so that just as you're bringing up, no one family member is going to be saddled with this. And have there been any situations in your life where you, where you felt talking to your family and bringing your family in was valuable? Because sometimes people don't transpose. In other words, there would have been a, some other life crisis, not an illness or even an illness where it might've been an illness situation or where bringing people together to work as a team helped. These are the adaptation skills you were talking about. If they've done it in a different context and come together, perhaps they can come together here. Yeah. Why are you afraid of that here? We use that kind of model when we were dealing when dad lost his job or something. I'll say, why wouldn't that same approach be valuable now? What's the difference? In other words, I'd start clinically to tease that apart. And sometimes I prefer to go to the side of what are the possible advantages? What in these other situations, what did you learn that was useful about the family coming together? The other piece is, are there some downsides if you don't divulge? I certainly have where you do this, go it alone. What will be the impact on your marriage? What will be, how will your kids feel about it, et cetera? The assumption that people are resistant I think is overplayed. I think often in these situations, people haven't been in this world and they haven't had a chance to think it through. And sometimes right at the time of diagnosis or, or early treatment, there's just too much going on. People are trying to re, you know, absorb too much. So tackling these issues at that point, I might not make an issue. I might say, let's wait till we get, uh, things get a little more settled and then let's come back to this. I remember very early on the first one of the first multifamily groups I did was with the dialysis program at Yale. And the senior colleague I was wearing, he said, I don't think we should start these until six weeks out because people are just absorbing too much information about end-stage renal disease, too much about their dialysis. They feel crappy. So let's wait until things settle down and then we'll do the group. And I learned a lot from that. It's like, you don't have to do it on day one. So the idea of an early consultation I just may come in and introduce myself to I'm part of the team. I'm looking forward to meeting you with you when da da da. Rather, I'm going to do a whole evaluation when they've just, they've got just a ton of other stuff on their plate. So that's a timing question. So sometimes resistance is I've got too much, there's too much going on for me right now. I just, I need to feel more grounded in the world with my treatments, understanding my diagnosis. I know there's situations where it's more often that can become a chronic sort of pattern in a family. But I also, in fairness, like to give families time to absorb information. And if they're dealing with an illness with lots and lots of stuff to learn, diabetes is an example. You got to learn a lot of stuff. It's not just taking a pill and take your blood pressure a couple times a week. So if I'm an MFT listening to this and I'm getting excited and I want to do this type of work, but you mentioned earlier, if you don't have the fortune of working in an integrated place where there are MDs and therapists, if you work in a private practice disconnected from this, you spoke of these kind of segregated silos of treatment and how to move to this more integrated care. What do we need to do as an MFT profession to have uh, more of a seat at the table to 
be in settings like this? Because this is almost like you're preaching to the choir here. It's hard to believe that there's not settings where family therapists are available to help with these chronically ill families. So this is more of a macro advocacy question. What do we need to do as a profession to have a seat at the table and have MFTs in all these types of settings? The good news is integrated care is, is like a national mandate. So a lot of places are now mandating essentially some form of integrated care. Now that could be a psychiatrist coming in once a week and doing medication evaluations. That's one end of the continuum. But a lot of them are broader than that. And so I think there's Collaborative Family Healthcare Association, which I'm a member of, and most MedMFTs I know are a member of that. It's just growing leaps and bounds. There's just people joining. There's sites all over the place that are developing integrated care. I think this is a bountiful time in the sense that there's a lot of opportunities. Getting to the specific of an MMFT, I think there's a couple of things. I think there's been too much focus on the primary care end of the field. I happen to have been working personally much more in specialty care over my career with diabetes units, cancer centers, things like that. That's all specialty, ter- specialty care. I think there's a lot of opportunities there for med MFTs. And I don't think that just like rehabilitation medicine, the rehab Institute in Chicago, there's these huge systems, palliative care, where I don't think MFTs have really, I don't know if it's an awareness or it's in the training aspect, but even with med MFTs who come there, if they'd worked already in primary care settings, they're not as familiar on average with specialty care. I push the fellows like consider specialty. One of my fellows from uh, about five years ago got the position with the genetic counseling program in Northwestern. It's a clinical service and it's a graduate program. She is the director now of the mental health, psychosocial end of the training. That position was held by a social worker who retired. We, we used to do some lectures for them, our center. And then the opening came up, she applied and got it. So that's an example where MedMFT, she's doctoral level, is opened a new door. I think as you probably are well aware, there's also the political level of you're going to take my position. It's like musical chairs. If MedMFTs come in, then on an average, usually it's more social work counselors that feel like they're going to get displaced. I don't see that as much with clinical health psychologists just because their job functions are different. So some of this is political. I don't have to tell you. And I think that's, it's important to get people from outside the discipline to advocate. It's important to get, I'm not an MFT in a sense. That's not my training. My degree is to, you know, do that. I think as more MFTs are working in these integrated settings, other people could start to learn, this is what they're capable of. This is how they, what they bring to the table that's different or than a social worker, et cetera. And some of this is getting access. It's like working with a difficult cases and I get a referral. The clinician doesn't know me. I work with a difficult case. If I do a decent job, they make more referrals. So I think it's the same here. Some of this is a developmental stage for the field of MFTs getting access. Part of it is taking bold steps, not, I'm always thrilled when MFTs or some ones who go in academia positions, not necessarily in an MFT program. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that when they can, because that opens things up, there's now an interdisciplinary process going on and things like that, I think are gradual. The political side is about money and finances and power and control. So I, I don't have 
that's a much longer conversation and it's frustrating. I would love to see more med MFTs in, particularly in hospital settings. I think it's been slower to develop where you will see med MFTs who actually hold positions inside that part of the system. They're out outpatient clinics and things like that. It's a developmental issue. I'm always telling marriage family therapists, don't sell yourself as a one trick pony here. If I'm a doctor and I think well, that's all you can do, then I'm not, I'd rather have somebody who has multiple skills. So I think part of it is how MFTs present themselves that they are trained to do individual work, et cetera, et cetera, that they can do. It's not like they just do a modality. I think it's unfortunate when things get reduced that way. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask. We've been talking about collaborative healthcare, your own collaboration with another guest on our show, another pioneer from a wall. She told us this very personal story about your first life, your late wife. And I want to ask, I think of your family systems illness model and Froma's resilience model going together like peanut butter and jelly. So Obviously, that's represented professionally in this Chicago Center for Family Health, your collaboration. But talk a little bit about you and Froma, the whole being greater than the sum of the parts in your personal and professional collaboration. Yeah, I think we, I think was work with resilience and normative was very much in sync with my ideas about families dealing with illness. It's a normative, normative frame. So I think that that was very important. I came together to point in our careers and there was an opportunity here in Chicago. We've At the same time, we've had different spheres. I have families and it's very important to have your own sphere and to have some boundaries. I think it's what's harder is coming home and turning that spigot off, so to speak, and not having, not having director's meetings at home and things like that. But we've helped each other and we've looked at each other's work. We had actually similar backgrounds and training. She worked with Bernice Newgarden when she was, who was her mentor in adult development and aging. So some ways we had similar kinds of mentors. And so a lot of our thinking was the same of some of the ways we thought about systems. So I think that all was part of the initial ingredients. Plus we like working together, but it's, I think there's a lot of similarity and we've, we always, with our center, we've had people with very different therapy approaches. We've always liked the diversity. And that was one of the other, I just wanted to mention that. The one thing that I think is really important is multidisciplinary training. I, I didn't say that before, but I just want to mention that for MFTs, if they can get opportunities where they're getting in some kind of a learning setting where they're interacting with people like me or people, physicians, nurses, other disciplines, I think that all goes to strengthening in a bilateral way the skills of the MFT, as well as getting other people to know what MFTs do. So I love when we've had training groups at our center over the years where it's been multidisciplinary because you get very different perspectives or different view, have people have different roles. And I think that's, that goes a long distance at helping move the field forward. John, your latest book, I've read it. And it, if you like what we've been talking about today, you want to check out helping couples and families navigate illness and disability, an integrated approach, which talks about these patterns and these phases and John's family systems illness model. Also, you could check out a very great book, Families, Illness and Disability. I remember reading that early in my training and an integrated treatment model, which John co-authored. If the listeners would like to continue the dialogue, learn more, how can they get a hold of you? Sure. Yeah. My, my email address is john, J-O-H-N dot 
Roland, R-O-L-A-N-D, at northwestern.edu. One of the other things I just wanted to say in the book compared to the first book is that there's now chapters on things like people who have neurocognitive impairment. There's much more on dealing with things like dementias, acquired brain injuries. There's a chapter on genetics. The book is much more developed clinically, I think, compared to the first book. Also talks about some program development. So where systems ask me to come in and help develop programs. So there's some examples of that as well for people who are in that position. Eli, back with you, bringing to a close another informative installment of the AAMFT podcast, where we seek to relate, educate, and innovate one episode at a time. John is certainly an innovator in the integration between medicine, chronically ill patients, and family systems. If you enjoyed listening to John, please check out four seasons worth of podcast, including some relevant to what John was talking about. Back in season one, our seventh episode, I sit down face-to-face pre-pandemic with Dr. Angela Lamson and Dr. Jennifer Hodgson, the great duo who were innovators in MedMFT, medical family therapy. Great episode. And also, if you're interested in John's personal and professional partner, that's from a Walsh. Episode 30, a great career retrospective. On the AMFT podcast, we bring you the innovators, the pioneers like John. We also bring you the latest and greatest topics influencing the field of systemic therapy. We rely on you to drive our content. You can get a hold of me several ways. Twitter, I'm at Dr. Eli Lott. The AAMFT is at the AAMFT. Follow the conversation there. You can drop me a line, Eli at NorthStarCounselingCenter.com. Also check me out at EliCaram.com. That's E-L-I-K-A-R-A-M.com. Until next time, my friends, stay safe, stay systemic.